Hello, this is Christy Amira Harfouche, and you're listening to the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. We have a message for you today from Reverend John Harfouche. For more information, live broadcasts, and video teachings, connect with us online at globalrevival.com and join us every week for the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Turn with me to the first epistle of Peter and chapter 2. When you're there, say amen. Amen. And starting from verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, If you believe it today, just take your Bible in your hand or whatever digital medium that you're accessing the Bible with and lift your Bible above your head and say, this is the word of God, God. not tradition, not man's opinion. opinion. I believe it. I I can do what it says I can do. If you believe it, just set the Bible down and shout like you've never shouted before. You've never... You've never shouted like that before? Come on! Hey! Hallelujah! Well, hello, chosen generation. Hello, royal priesthood. (laughs) Hello, peculiar people. You may be seated this morning, and we are going to be talking about the apostolic generation. We're going to be uh, ministering about to you on uh, the early church, as is, I mean, generally, that's what we do. Um, You know... We contend for the faith that was once delivered, was once delivered, once and once and for all to the saints. The one faith that was delivered the one time and that we are called to fight for, to contend for, to push toward, like Paul said, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high call. That is the life of a Christian. That is the life of someone who is part of a chosen generation. Now, something that we were speaking about at first century faith and other things that I taught along the lines of this a little bit, but I didn't spend a long time on a particular area of it. And that is generation. Generation is a word that means a lot of things. 
And we use it and we recognize it in the Bible most often referring to a group of people born at a specific time. So we might have, you know, Generation X or the Boomers or the Millennials or Generation Z, Zoomers, whatever they're calling them. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, but we have generations, right? And it goes back. I mean, you know, there's like a bazillion, the greatest generation, the silent generation, you know, whatever, the lost generation. There's like, it's a whole, a lot of them are really negative, actually. Except for the greatest generation. Universal applause on that, uh, on that name. They're just like, we'll just call them the greatest generation. Um, which is good. They, they did a good job. Um, but generation. And you see it throughout the Old Testament as well. Because it talks about generations. Like, say, the generation that perished in the wilderness. Versus the generation that entered into the promised land. You know, the, the New Testament starts with generations. And it gives you all of the generations all the way down. And so we're very familiar with the term generation referring to a specific people in a specific time. But how many of you are familiar with all of the other words that we have been, that we have received into the English language from the root of that word? Generator. Gene. Genetics, Genesis. A generation is a beginning. And this is a new beginning. It is a new generation. And a generation is the root of a thing. The reason that it is used to refer to a group of people is because that group of people is generated. It's a single generation. It's a going forth. It's the next generation of people, right? The next generation. When something is generated, it is created. Generators create electricity, right? And so much so is that this word that we use that it has the root for Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, which just means a beginning, how many of you are not aware that the word Gentiles comes from the word Genesis or gene? Why? Well, it's very simple. Gentiles is the Greek word, which eventually became an English word, to refer to the people that were not Jewish by the Jews in the Bible because Gentiles means the nations. But it is a plural term. It is talking about a great many nations, the multitude of peoples, the different families of the earth, the different generations of the earth, all of these different people. There's a term also in the Old Testament, a Hebrew term that was used for them, but the term we're familiar with is Gentiles. Uh, for instance, the, the Bible talks about Galilee of the Gentiles because much of the people that lived there were from other nations. And when we say nation, we don't mean country in the modern sense with a border and everything like that. We mean nation as in a group of people, a tribe of people, a nation, right? That word, Gentiles, comes from the same place. In fact, 
and I think this is very relevant to the context of the scripture, we see a few things listed out in order. We see a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, right? A royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Like the Bible says that we are kings and priests unto God. Not only denoting uh, holiness, but authority. A place in the kingdom, not just as an earthly authority or as a heavenly witness. A royal priesthood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The word genos in Greek... The word here, generation, is the word genomai. The word genos in Greek means a race or stock or kin. And it's actually where we get the word kin. Gene came into uh, um, Germanic as keen. And then that eventually became kin in English. And kind. In fact, the word child, which used to have a hard K sound at the beginning of it, comes from the same word as well, as this word genos. But there's something about the word gene in that time that is unique. In in Roman times, genos was used uh, for, it means, a, a social group claiming common descent. But gene was used to describe noble families. Because if you were common, if there was nothing special about your ancestry, you usually didn't track your genealogy. Because there was no particular benefit to you doing so. There was no particular meaning to you doing so. The Levites tracked their genealogies, for instance. But a lot of the other tribes of, of, of Israel didn't. And that's why they're now the lost tribes of Israel. Because they all combined into one people. Right? But uh, you track your genealogy if your genealogy is important. And so genos was used specifically they use the term genos to refer to groups of people who were noble families groups of people of noble descent within the roman empire like oh yes that genos that genos that genos and so they'd have the word nation in a broader sense because a nation is like a tribe descended from the same people. They have a common ancestry. But they would use the term genos to refer to a royal line. Like, for instance, the royal line in England that traces their genealogy back. That's one family that goes all the way back into history that has that history traced. Well, in Roman terminology, they would use the word genos or gene to refer to that family because they're a family of noble birth. Much of early Greek politics was about certain genos arguing with certain genos and struggling against certain genos and 
politicking between different houses and families and tribes and that kind of thing. But how many of you know that a royal, that a chosen generation right before a royal priesthood is something that the Greek-speaking people of that time would have recognized both things as royalty. Now, this is just a, a, little, a little bonus that I'm, that I'm giving you of a little bit of Greek because it's foreign to the way we use the terms today. But we are born into the family of God. Not a, a generation over here, separate from. Like, oh, here's God, and then God made a generation down here. No, Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. And so the opposite of that is that if the corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. It generates fruit. It brings forth a new gene, a new generation, a new family, a new nation. We're born from above. We are, I mean, that's just straight up word. It's in the Bible. We are born from above, from incorruptible seed. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because you are of the same gene as Jesus. In fact, we get the term genus, which you may or may not be familiar with from that word as well. We have species. The higher form above species is genus, meaning a family. So, you know, dogs and wolves and wild dogs and dingoes and jackals and coyotes are all not the same species but they are all the same genus. So you are not just a different species from the rest of humanity. You are a different genus. You are a whole nother kind of thing. You are a new generation. There's no common ancestry there. The old man is dead. You're no longer born after the flesh. You are born after the spirit. You are no longer the descendants of Adam. You are the children of God. Hallelujah. Now listen, I'm sorry if that sounds real extreme to you and you think that that should be taken metaphorically, but I don't think that if you read the Bible, you will find that to be the case because there are real differences between the people of God, the apostolic generation, and the rest of the world that they were born into. And there is a distinct separation. Why do you think the word of God says you were translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? When, why do you think that Jesus said, the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. 
is to have a new generation uh, from a different generator, to have a different genus, different genes, a different family, born again. And you might have certain genes in the natural. And look, I'm not saying if you take a genetic test before and after you get baptized, it's going to come out different. It might, but that's not the point. Right? The color of your hair and the color of your eyes and the color of your skin is not the point. That is not what makes you who you are. Jesus is who makes you who you are. The new birth is who makes you who you are. The word of God is what makes you who you are. Hallelujah. That is what it means to be a Christian. Now, why is this important? It's important because you, it is very easy for you to understand if you think about it that way, that there is no difference between those who were born of this new generation 2,000 years ago and those who are born of this new generation today. They're, they're not separate generations. They might be natural different generations in the natural, but the one generation is not talking about a group of people born at a specific time because the source of that generation is not their parents. Tarsus is not the source of Paul, right? The, Peter's parents are not the source of the newborn Peter. And so the generation cannot be referring to people born at that specific time because then their parents would be the source of that generation. And we are told the opposite of that. We are told that Christ is the source of that generation. That the seed that we are born of is incorruptible. It is from heaven. And so that generation is not a moment in time that generation is a new genus a new nation a new family and so we're talking about the apostolic generation but we're not talking about that just that apostolic generation in a temporal sense we are talking about you because you are the apostolic generation you are the new birth you are the ones who Christ has said, go to every nation of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that makes you sent. That makes you apostolic. That makes you ap the apostolic generation. Hallelujah. Now, how many of you, I believe in your intelligence level. I believe that you can understand that there is a time-based apostolic generation as regards to history as regards to history and there is an apostolic generation as regards to the word of God because the word of God cannot be incarcerated in any historical period God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so there might be a natural term, the apostolic generation, that we use to refer to people that were taught directly by the apostles. And that's important historically because we can study what they knew. 
and understand what they were taught. And it lines up with the books that we have been handed from the apostles. Because I don't know about you. Have you been taught directly by the apostles? Not physically, but whose books are in that book that you are holding right now? Whose words are in that book that you are holding right now? What is the teaching that you have been handed? What is the doctrine that you have been handed? It is the doctrine of the apostles. It's the same books that people 2,000 years ago were reading in church. Those people that lived all those thousands of years ago, those members of your family, who in the natural you could not have less in common with, but in God are your brothers and your sisters. In God, you have more in common with them than any natural relation who has not been born again into the kingdom and any other human of your race or ethnicity or country that has not been born into the kingdom. You have more in common with them in the new birth than with your own natural lineage in the natural. Those people 2,000 years ago were reading those same letters from Paul, those same letters from Peter, and they might have gotten a lot more, just like somebody who's in residence in International Miracle Institute might have a little bit more opportunity to hear from Dr. Harfouche versus somebody that's reading or listening from all over the world. But the point is, those people received the same word that you did. And so why is it that Christians are so obsessed with acting like they have nothing in common with those people. There's just one faith that was delivered one time. There's just one Holy Ghost that was delivered one time. Now listen, you received the Holy Ghost when you received the Holy Ghost, but that was not a new Holy Ghost. That was not a different Holy Ghost. That was not a diluted Holy Ghost. It was not a stepped on Holy Ghost. That is the Holy Ghost who bears witness to the fact that you have the true word of God that was delivered to the saints safekeeping. Hallelujah. And so there's no distance there's no distance between you and them. If people have, I don't know why people have such a hard time with this. You know, like you use, like, like we, we refer to Dr. Harfouche as our apostle, which means different things to different people in different denominations. Many denominations, an apostle is someone who plants churches and puts a pastor there or someone that's over a lot of churches or just an evangelist or there's very many things. There are some churches that use apostle only to refer to lay people. Right? That somebody who doesn't have an office but is going and preaching the gospel, they refer to as an apostle. It's a lower thing to them. But people got a problem with it. People get upset because you use the word apostle. And they say, oh, you think that you're the apostle Paul. No. You can get up here and say, it's me, Elijah. Hi, I'm Elijah. I'm back. (laughs) 
that's absolutely ridiculous. But in their estimation, those people, those apostles, those first century Christians are a different people than us. They are a different species. They are a different generation. We can never attain to what they walked in because that was just for them. That was just for their generation. Where is that in the Bible? Because you can read the whole thing and you will not find that written in a single place. You will not find that that word. Listen, that's not the good news as far as I'm concerned. The people of God stepped into a very dangerous world. And it was a world that did not want them around. But danger has not left the people of God. There are still martyrs every year, regularly, who die for the faith. And there is still sickness. There are still demoniacs. There are still people that are speaking against God all over the world today. There's still poverty. There's still every terrible thing. Now, to be clear, the world is a much, 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 much better place today than it was then. You only have to look at things like child mortality rates to know that that's the truth or average lifespan, the, the things that were starvation. By, by our, by our, um, by our standards of living, by our standards of living, not our current monetary systems, I mean just standard of living adjusted for inflation or whatever, buying power-wise, like how much food can I buy with this money? Today, something like 20% of the global population lives in extreme poverty. 150 years ago, that number was 98%. So that means that, I mean, that's a big change in 150 years. And what do you think it was like 2,000 years ago? It was a hard world. But listen, just because things have gotten better, just because we live in a country where we are free to worship God and it's enshrined in our constitution, as people say, which is a weird way to refer to it, enshrined. <laughs> just because we are in a good place that is much better than anyone at that time could have ever imagined it does not mean that we do not need the Holy Ghost anymore. It does not mean the gospel has changed. And there might be people that are comfortable with not living a supernatural life. I guarantee you there are many more Christians today who are capable of being comfortable not living a supernatural life than back then. Because when the government is tracking you down to try and kill you, you're going to be praying a lot more. 
right? That's totally normal. When, when things happen in the world naturally, wars and, and, and pandemics and other things like that, people start praying a lot more, right? But listen, all that, just because nations have changed, just because laws have changed, just because technology has changed, that does not mean God has changed. Just because science has changed. I've heard people say that God doesn't need to heal as many people today because we have modern medicine. Does that even make any sense? Does that even make any sense? And look, we always say we've got no problem with doctors. We love doctors. You need to go to a doctor, go to a doctor, right? Modern medicine is, is a lot better than medieval medicine or any medicine that came before it. I'll tell you that much, right? But just because we have some comfortable things in our lives, it doesn't mean that the enemy is resting on his laurels or the devil went to some other country. (laughs) Right? Like America's fine. The devil's like, you know what? I'm going to go to some poor country where things are horrible and harass the people there. No. (laughs) How many of you know that the reason the Bible says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just is because there's wicked with wealth. Right? So there's a whole lot of devils in America. And there's a whole lot of devils in every country on the planet. But you know what? They're the same exact devils that had to face us 2,000 years ago. Our people that were in church reading those same books were going all over the world and casting out those same devils. So you know what happens when you walk up to those devils? They get PTSD. They get shell shock flashbacks. They start hearing gunfire. They're like, oh no, it's one of them. Ah! They got post-traumatic stress demon disorder. Listen, word spreads fast. We have, a, we have an account in the, in the New Testament where a demon told somebody, Jesus I know and Paul I know. Word spreads fast. Well, I'll tell you what, he probably knew a whole lot more names a few years after that. Can't catch a break. Get cast out of this person, find a new person. Oh God, another Christian. I'm going to have to move again. There's Christians moving into the neighborhood. (laughs) Can't get away. You know, demons go to, to Galatia, the Christians show up. Demons go to Corinth, the Christians show up. Demons go to, go to, uh, you know, where the Celts are, the Christians show up. Demons go all the way to, to Great Britain and the Christians show up. Ireland and the Christians show up. Africa and the Christians show up. India and the Christians show up. Armenia and the Christians show up. Everywhere. 
there's no escape. There is no escape. There is no escape. Right? There's no escape. But listen, you are the same kind of people that those people were. There is not one thing that was more supernatural or mystical about those people than you. And no amount, no amount of education in modern science makes you too sophisticated to believe in the promises of God. Listen, that's just stupid. Dr. Afush tells a story. He had someone tell him one time. You know, it's, it's amazing how you work in those miracles. I, I, wish, I wish I wasn't so educated. I feel like I'm just too educated to work in those miracles. Because they know too much about the diseases. And they're right. They know too much about the diseases and not enough about God. And not enough about the promises of God. Because if you're, I don't care how much you learn about a disease. If you get impressed with the disease instead of impressed with the creator. Then you got a problem. You ain't got nothing to be afraid of if you're of the people of God. What do you think Paul would do when he came up against the... Maybe we shouldn't be asking WWJD. We should be asking WWPD. (laughs) Not because we shouldn't do what Jesus would do, but because sometimes it's easier for you to look at what Paul did or what Peter did or what Stephen did or what Philip did or what other people that didn't happen to be God incarnate did. Right? Because you're called to walk in the same authority that Jesus walked in. But if you can't step up to that because you need to be educated a little bit more in who you are, then at least look at the other humans and look at what they did when they came across a disease. Listen, Paul was real educated. He was a very educated man. When he got bit by that serpent, do you think it it was just luck that he didn't know that particular snake was poisonous? Like a Looney Tune running off of a cliff. As long as they don't look down, they won't fall. As long as they don't know they're hovering in midair, they won't fall. That's not how faith works. Paul could have known everything about that snake. He could have known that snake's name, that snake's mama's name. And it's not going to give that snake any more authority over Paul. Right? Was Paul just lucky because he thought it was a black racer, but it was really a water moccasin? No. It was a viper. It was venomous. And he was like, get out of here. What's that? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what kind of human I am? That might have worked on a homo sapien. That might have worked on a son of Adam. But I am a child of God. Hallelujah. And look, don't panic. We don't bring snakes into our meetings and pass them around. That's not something that we do. But if a snake bites one of us, we know that that snake does not have authority over us. That that poison will die before we will die. That that snake will die before we will die. That we 
will not die if we drink any deadly thing. Not because we go around drinking deadly things. That doesn't make any sense. But we know that those things won't affect us. Why? Because we are a different kind. We are a different kin. We are a different genus. We are a different people. Listen, when we say nation in our modern interpretation, you think of something you can immigrate to. Something you can learn to be. Something you can assimilate into. Right? Something you can bring your culture into and your culture comes with you and it doesn't change who you are in the natural. It doesn't change anything physically about you. You don't get an, um, you know, a, a British citizenship and turn white. Right? You don't, you don't get, an, get an Indian citizenship and turn brown, okay? But when we think of nations, we think of like a natural logistic organization that if you agree with the philosophy of the nation and you want to make a life in it, then you can uh, apply and become a member of that nation and reap the benefits of being a member of that nation. You might even be able to keep your original citizenship and have dual citizenship if those nations are on good terms. You know, sometimes no. Sometimes nations don't like each other and they're like, listen, if you become a citizen of this nation, you have to, you know, renounce your citizenship from that other country. But sometimes you can have dual citizenship. Listen, we got a whole lot of Christians in the kingdom acting like they got dual citizenship. A whole lot of Christians acting like they got dual citizenship. Like, man, I might have been, I might have been, I might have taken this plane into the kingdom of light, but I could go home anytime. You know, I'm a child of God, but I'm just a sinner. I'm redeemed, but I'm a sinner. What? I don't understand people sometimes. Like people are obsessed with putting all the the promises of God either in the past or in the future. So you can tell they understand how time works. Right? That was the past. There's the future. This is the present. They get that. And yet Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago and they're still a sinner? He redeemed them 2,000 years ago and they're still a sinner? At what point in the future is Jesus going to die again for you? After you die, is Jesus going to die again for you so you can get all the way saved in heaven? No. Once it is appointed for man to die. He already paid the price. You're already bought. And when you become a citizen of the kingdom of God, you renounce your citizenship in the kingdom of darkness. But it's more than that. It is more than that. 
Because the older understanding of a nation is something you have to be born into. If you are not, if you do not have a shared ancestry with that nation, you cannot be a part of that nation. In fact, there are nations today that you cannot become a citizen of unless you are born from someone who is a citizen of that nation. The old concept of a nation was a family. It was kin. You couldn't join it if you were not of it. The only way you could possibly is if somehow you could be born all over again and be born the right way the second time. Right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a family. It is a nation. It is a new generation, a new, a new germination, a new seed, a new birth that we are supernaturally born into. And we are no more. The old man is dead. Not just metaphorically. In truth, that old nature that you inherited from Adam, you don't have it anymore. You cut yourself off from it. When you were born into God's family, when you received Christ's inheritance, when you became a joint heir with him, you cease to be an heir of the sin of the world. You cease to be an heir of the natural things. You are now an heir with Christ, bought with a price. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I, I have not, I've been, this is just one scripture. This is just one scripture. Listen, uh, listen, we're talking about a, a, a time period in history where there was an empire that was in control of the greater portion of the world and they had built roads. They made it real easy for the gospel to spread really, really fast. The Lord knew what time he was going to send Jesus. Okay, even though the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's going on. There is no time that you can be born in where there are unforeseen circumstances that God has not already planned for, that God has not already given you the victory over. It's not like, oh, well, that's what I believe, but right now I'm living in this situation, right? Like, oh, I know that the word of God says, forsake not the gathering of ourselves together, but the Romans are trying to kill people. Right? No. Those Christians were so tenacious, they literally dug down into the ground and made secret tunnels and underground churches, literally underground churches in those cities where they were oppressed. Right? And in other places, look, it's not any different from the way that God has worked with his people all throughout history. He told Isaac to plant in a time of famine. It's real easy to say, yes, I believe in sowing and reaping, but we don't know what the economy is going to do, so I really got to make sure I tighten my belt and, and keep my, uh, my, uh, 
my emergency rainy day fund strong because the Lord might not have known that the economy was going to go down. He might not have seen that coming. Surprised me. Might have surprised God. How many of you know it doesn't matter what time you live in? And the same thing is true when you live in a time that's civil. The same thing is true when we live in a time where we have a legal right to worship the Lord. It's like, oh, well, the only reason they were that radical is because they were facing stronger persecution than we face today. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do less when you have more freedom? Like, oh, I only wanted the supernatural power of God when I was oppressed. Now that I'm free, I can just relax. I don't, I don't want that anymore. If anything, when the limits are taken off, the church should be more radical. The church should be more powerful. The church should be more bold. You could say, I have a legal right. Right? Because you can stand on the word and you can stand on what your nation provides. Right? The Lord... It shouldn't be a thing where natural circumstances change how a Christian acts. It should not be a thing. If you are a Christian, you should be a Christian all the time. You should act like a Christian all the time. We are, we are that generation. We're that nation. We're that priesthood. We're that people. We are that royalty. That's us. There's no difference. Right? Well, go with me to the book of Acts. Let's look at... Let's look at Acts chapter 3. You know, Acts chapter 1... The, the talks about the beginning of the church. I said before, Acts is one of the only books in the New Testament that doesn't end with amen. Because that wasn't the end of the story. It's still going today. Because the gospel is still being preached throughout the world with power today. There are still acts of the apostles going on today. Right? And we had that great outpouring. We had that awesome first meeting for the church, you know. Started with 120 people. Next thing you know, there's 3,000 people that here. You got a big outdoor meeting. (laughs) Right? 3,000 were added to the church. You know, 3,000 people is not that much by by some standards. But think about 3,000 people. Think about... 3,000 people, when the 12 apostles go up in front of them, preach the gospel to them, they hear the gospel preached in all of their native tongues. There are people from every nation of the world, people that have no common genus, no common generation, no common genesis, different nations of people from all over the world. And on that first day, They're baptized into the kingdom of God and the Holy Ghost comes on each and every one of them just like it did in the upper room. And that upper room experience spreads from 120 to 3,000 in a day. 
How powerful do you think those 3,000 people were? What do you think, what, what generation do you think they thought they were? What did they think they had? There was no distance between them and the apostles. There was no distance between them and Jesus. Just like there's no distance between you and Jesus right now in this place. Right? 3,000 people. And the book of Acts has like four, four maybe, three or four different places where it's like this happened and then the saints were greatly multiplied. And then it happens again, and they were greatly multiplied. Then it happens again, and they were greatly multiplied. I haven't gone through and counted all of the times that the saints were greatly multiplied. But if you start with 3,000 loud people in the streets, what did the multitudes look like by the end of that? No wonder everybody was so desperate to shut the Christians up. And that's what I'm saying. When there was freedom, there was a greater multiplication or the same level of multiplication. The church didn't start out chill until persecution came and then the power of God came. No, when, when they had not yet, before the first martyr, the church was multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. In chapter 3 of Acts, it says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Now, the Bible is very good at, believe it or not, brevity. They manage to give you a lot of information in a very short period of time. And here later on, we'll find out that this man is over 40 years old. And he's been begging at that one gate. Every time people are coming through that gate for 40 years. At the temple. Anybody who has eyes in their head, has seen this man. Everybody knows about this lame dude. He was, he was physically crippled. It wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't ostracized by society due to his clothing style. This is the original meaning of lame. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him. Wow. That's a, that, is a, that is a word right there. Peter looked at him. No. Peter, fastening his eyes upon him. How many of you have had Dr. Harfouche fasten his eyes upon you before? It's like, ugh. <laughs> fastening his eyes upon him with John. They both fastened their eyes upon him. Said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. <laughs> Did he receive something from them? Yes. 
Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping. And praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened to him. It says, and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer. Hold on with you. to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he goes on and it says um, that there were 5,000 men at the temple that day. It doesn't say how many men, how many women and children, but what a crazy spectacle that must have been when that man came running into the temple that every single one of those people knew and had probably given some alms to when he was crippled. And he was healed. And he held, he hugged the apostles. And they said, why are you looking at us surprised as if we did this? Jesus did this. God, the God of your fathers did this. Now let me ask you something. When Peter and Paul said to that man, such as I have, give I unto you. They themselves said later on, it was not done by their own holiness, but by Jesus, by the name of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus. Not by a specific authority given to 12 men. Not by a specific authority given to 70 men 
or 120 men. Because the 120 that were in the upper room, men and women who were filled, they were clothed with fire, filled with the Holy Ghost. And they went into the streets supernaturally, preaching in languages they didn't know. All of them, men and women. But that same, the same way they said, the Holy Ghost fell on the 3,000 the same way that it fell on us in the upper room. And so there wasn't even a distinction between the 120 and the 3,000 that, that received it in the same day. I know it's a common uh, you know, thing we joke about, like, man, I would hate to have missed that meeting where the 120 got clothed with fire. But those, the other people that weren't there didn't miss out. They didn't receive something lesser. They received it in the same way. And it didn't stop on that day. Cornelius and his family received it in the same way. People that were baptized and brought into the kingdom received it in the same way. So let me ask you, when Peter and Paul said to that man at the gate, beautiful, such as I have, such as we have, give I unto you, did they have something that you don't have? Is there a Holy Ghost that they had that you don't have? They talk about it later. They said the Lord, it is witnessed to by the fact that the Lord has raised Jesus from the dead. And we are witnesses of him. And by the Holy Ghost, which Jesus received from the Father and gave to us. So do you have the name of Jesus? Do you have faith in the name of Jesus? Do you have the Holy Ghost? So do you, is there anything that they had that we no longer have? It would be one thing, and this, and let's be clear. This is the doctrine. This is the teaching of the apostles to the church. So if they needed to tell us that this was something that only they had access to. They had opportunity to do so. And yet, they didn't tell anybody that. We already went through a ton of the early church fathers for hundreds of years saying that believers, that those who believe receive gifts and they cast out devils and they heal the sick. So... There's no, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I know that you know what we believe. And I know that you know that we are an apostolic church. We believe in working in the same anointing that the apostles worked in, doing the same works that the apostles did, that we're a pre-denominational church, that we believe in living like the first century church no matter what century it is. I know that you know that, but this is something that you have to get as clear a picture of as possible so that when the devil even subconsciously tries to draw a line between you and the early church, between the apostles and the church today, between the church then and the church today, between the Holy Ghost then and the Holy Ghost today, between the miracles then and the miracles today, you can laugh in his face because you know that what we have is 
exactly what they had. And that what we have is better than silver and gold. That what we have is real and is tangible. Peter and Paul didn't say, I have nothing. They said, such as I have. That wasn't their power. It was God's. But God imbued them with power, the book of Acts says. Clothed them. They are clothed with power. And you are clothed with power. You are clothed with power. There's no difference. There's no difference. And, and uh, it doesn't matter what style of music we, we sing to God in. It doesn't matter the color or style of our clothes or our hair or the government or any other situation going on in our life. No matter what kind of culture or group or, or family or tribe or race we come from, there's no difference. There's no distinction because all of those things are left behind when we become citizens of the kingdom of God. When we are born of a new birth, of a new generation, into a new family, into a new people. And listen, I've talked about this before. We have Christian art now that's recognizable. And there are certain different time periods of it. I mean, I can look at something and be like, oh, well, this is Christian art from the 70s or 80s in the United States versus this is Christian art from, you know, the 500s in Byzantium, you know, versus this is Christian art from Ethiopia from a couple hundred years ago or whatever. There's many styles of Christian art. There's many styles of Christian music. How many of you have lived long enough to see styles of Christian music change and styles of Christian art change? For a while there, it was just lions. It was only paintings of lions. All lions all the time. Anyone else notice that? What is the deal, right? Just lions. Look, lions are amazing. I've seen lions in person. They're an incredible, it's an incredible like combination of beautiful and peaceful and terrifying. There's a, there's a sense of awe because you know that this thing could just, if it wanted to, just, not us because we got angels. Angels that are stronger than lions, right? That, that lion would end up in a headlock, wouldn't know what was going on. You know, just like Daniel, the, the angels shut the mouths of the lions. I'm not being weird, okay? I'm just talking about the Bible. But the point is, if you didn't have the Lord, you're completely at the whim of that thing. So I understand that lions are a phenomenal visual representation of awe. Something that is beautiful and peaceful and dangerous like God. Or like a Christian. Something that is beautiful and peaceful and dangerous. Because they're imbued with power, right? But art and music and everything that's on the outside when it comes to Christianity 
changes on the regular. And in the early church, every single place that the gospel went, it didn't matter that there was a Roman Empire. Because all of the different places had completely different styles of dress, completely different styles of music, completely different, different styles of architecture, completely different styles of art. When you look at Galatia and Ephesus and just anywhere that's named in the Bible, you know, Laodicea and all these places, right? They're all different from each other, dramatically different. And then, of course, you know, you have Christianity going to, to Egypt. You have Christianity going across North Africa, into sub-Saharan Africa, into India, into Armenia, all these places. And we have the Bible translations that show it. I mean, you have Ethiopian translations of the Bible from the second and third century. You have Armenian translations of the Bible from the second century. You have the Latin translations of the Bible from the first and second century that were eventually you know, superseded by a more important translation in the 400s or so. But you have all of these first and second and third century places where the Bible was translated. In fact, most of those languages, most of the languages the Bible was translated into had no written language at the time the Christians got there. And Christians invented written languages, invented alphabets for those languages so that they could write the Bible in those languages, spread them to all those people. Well, you can't tell me that somebody living in sub-Saharan Africa and someone living in Iconia had a lot in common with each other. Culturally, you could not be further apart. They did not have the same. There was no Christian art or Christian music like that was one style. It wasn't like, this is the art that, these are the clothes that Christians wear, right? This is the art that Christians make. This is the style that we sing in when we sing. (laughs) Sorry, that instrument was created by Satan. (laughs) Right? Can't use that instrument. You can only use these instruments. No, it wasn't like that. I don't know why everybody said, ooh, there. Is it because (laughs) the people say that about electric guitar? (laughs) Listen, the devil's not that creative. Devil has never created anything. And uh, so, you know, that's all I'm saying about that. Um, All of these people, they had, they were not a people, right? They were not a nation. They had nothing in common in the natural. But thanks to the word of God and thanks to the new birth And thanks to the baptism into the family of God, from the moment that those people became a part of the body of Christ, they had more in common with each other than with anyone from the nation that they were from. Because they were born again into a new nation, into a new family. Hallelujah. And many of those people were coming out of places in the world where maybe growing up they had been dedicated to demons, where there was all kinds of horrible pagan things that might have happened. Who knows what they went through? But how many of you know from experience of being in church and hearing people's testimonies that when God saves you, all that stuff goes away? 
All that stuff is washed clean to the point where you don't believe that that person sitting next to you has been through. When you hear their testimony, you're like, pardon me, what? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what background people came out of. The power of God makes you new. It makes you a new person. It, it makes you new. And so what happened with the, uh, what happened? Well, they preached the gospel to uh, all of these people. And uh, there was uh, the, f- the 5,000. And as, as they spoke unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 and 3. And they laid hands on them. They didn't lay hands on them in the, um, you know, in the way that you want to be laid hands on in church. They grabbed them. And they locked them up. They put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So but the church is growing by leaps and bounds, right? You can lock them up, but you can't, I mean, well, let's see what happens when you lock them up. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Apparently they weren't listening (laughs) the day before. And when they had set them in the midst, they they asked, I already read that. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And he goes on. uh, And um, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now the word unlearned means they were not lettered. And ignorant, I don't, I think, I'm pretty sure that's a matter of opinion there. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. How do you, when you see a miracle, say anything against it? But here's the deal. Just because God does an incredible miracle right in front of people's eyes, it doesn't mean that they're going to obey God. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed is a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem knows that man got healed. What are we supposed to do? We can't say nothing against it. Right? 
but that it spread no further among the people. What is wrong with these people? What a lack of self-awareness. Right? Like maybe they should be doing something about it. And listen, there were others that do. The book of Acts tells us that many among the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a great many number of the priests that did have brains in their heads and go, oh, this miracle's from God, therefore maybe I should listen to the people who did the miracle, right? (laughs) One plus one equals two, right? And they called them, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Stop it! You stop it right now! But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they threatened them some more. They couldn't come up with any reason to to punish them legally, so they let them go. Well, what happens next? I'm not going to read the whole thing because we'll be here until the rapture happens. Um, But I'll tell you what happens next. They didn't stop preaching in the name of Jesus. In fact, it says that they were in the synagogue just all day, like all the time, preaching the name of Jesus to everyone. They just went everywhere, preaching the name of Jesus to everyone. And once again, it says in the book of Acts that the, multi- that the saints were multiplied, that multitudes were added unto the saints. I would like for someone to actually like run some numbers and figure out how many people like were, how many times it was multiplied by the time we got to the end of the, of the, of Acts. Cause it's a lot just in Jerusalem. Right. But then what happened? Well, then the people got real mad and they locked him up, right? They took, the, they took Peter and, and John and they locked him up. And then the next day they went to back to the synagogue and Peter and John were there <laughs> preaching the gospel. And they ran to the, pre- the high priest and they said, the people you locked up, are re- they're, they're in the temple preaching right now. And they went and checked the jail. Everybody was still locked up. The guards didn't see nothing. They just supernaturally got out of prison. And the first thing they did was walk back to the temple and start preaching to people about God again. Why? Why were they like that? They were like that because of what they said. They came to him again and they basically said, what are you doing? And they said, we think it's better that we listen to God. We think it's better that we hearken to the voice of God. We cannot help but speak the things that we have seen. We cannot stop telling people about the wonderful works of God, about what God has done. And they knew that just like that snake didn't have authority over Paul, those earthly authorities didn't have authority over them. Listen, if you look at the people of God, you'll see that they made a point of being uh, law keepers. They said, keep the law of the land in which you live. But what they did not do 
was go against the word of God. What they did not do was disobey the voice of the Lord because they knew that no matter what happened, it is God whose hand they are in. It is God whose authority they are under that as a new kind of people, the person that they report to, the kingdom that they're a part of is the kingdom of God. Now, we have literally the same thing that they had and that they have. And the Holy Ghost didn't just fall on the 12. It didn't just fall on the 120. It didn't just fall on the 3,000. It didn't just fall on the thousands and the thousands and the multitudes that were added after. Because it continues to say, it makes a point of repeating that when the multitudes were added, they were baptized and received the Holy Ghost in the same way. And so the same Holy Ghost, the same power was just part and parcel with becoming a Christian. Because it's not a, it's not a persuasion, Right? It's not just a, you know what? I think those people are pretty cool. I'm going to join myself unto them. No, it is a new generation. It is a new birth. It is a new life. And everybody in the whole book of Acts that was born into the church received that Holy Ghost. And we, today, being born into the church 2,000 years later, receive that same Holy Ghost, receive that same thing. And so that generation is not a generation of time. It's not a single moment in time or a single group of people. It is a generation, a germination, a birth that is different from the rest of the world. A birth that is different from what we came out of. And every nation under heaven, from every people, there were people added to the nation of God, to the family of God, to the children of God. And they, and they weren't just a family as a separate thing from the Lord, but they were born into the same inheritance that Christ himself has. We're joint heirs. We're seated with him in heavenly places. You know, people say that a lot in church, that we're seated with him in heavenly places. But for a lot of people, it doesn't actually mean anything in their life. Because they don't, act in the authority that was given to the church and they don't act in the power that was given to the church and they don't stand on the word of God and on the promises of God and when they look around and see their surroundings they don't see themselves seated with Christ in heavenly places they don't see everything is going to line up with the word of God because I'm a child of God They don't see I'm a member of the body of Christ and all of these things around me are subject to that fact. They see themselves seated in their living room in quarantine. (laughs) 
They see themselves seated in their cubicle at their office. They see themselves seated in their house. They see themselves seated in their car. They see themselves going about their natural life. The way they perceive themselves is as Adam, as a human, dust to dust, as nothing but a natural man. And maybe, maybe they believe that they have a supernatural destiny. Maybe they believe that after they die, they'll be seated with God. They'll be seated with Christ in heavenly places. But that is not what being a Christian is. That's not what it was ever once defined as in the Bible. We are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places right now because we're his body. How many of you sit down with your body? Right? If Christ is the head, usually when you sit down, your head is sitting on top of your body. In fact, my head doesn't even sit. My body sits. My head's attached to it. Some people were very confused by that statement. Right? I sit as a whole. Right? Listen. We, we talk about the fact that he's waiting for his enemy to be made his footstool. And we know what's, we know who's here, who, are, who this is. Who is the body of Christ? Who is the body of Christ? Whose feet are these? Whose body is this? And so like people are like, Jesus is ours? There's some confusion there. We are his feet. We are his body. We are seated in heavenly places with him right now, right now. And we have to look around and see that as our surroundings. We have to look around and see that as our surroundings. That's what the apostles saw. They knew the authority and the power, the authority and the power that they had been given. They knew the saving power and the healing power and the delivering power of Jesus. And they knew that they were his body, that they were his emissaries, that they were the ones going out on his behalf and preaching the gospel, that they were the ones who were sent. Apostello sent ones that they were the generation the apostolic generation that was sent you are still the apostolic generation the great commission still applies to us we have been sent and so when we're sitting in our living room and enjoying some social distancing, or when we're sitting in our cubicle, or when we're sitting in our car, or when we're sitting in a restaurant, or when we're sitting at dinner with our family, no matter where we are sitting, we are sent 
by God to that place. We are the apostolic generation, the born again ones, the empowered ones. We have been given the Holy Ghost. We have been given authority as the church and every demonic situation we can answer, we can speak to, we can set right. And when we come across someone who is sick, we can say, such as I have, give I unto you. Because we know we have something. We're not Oh, they were the apostolic generation sent to change the earth. And we're just the people who are benefiting from that. We're the generation that comes after and just enjoys the benefits. Right? We're the, we're the, the rich kid of the person who built a large amount of wealth, who, you know, changed the world, but we're just going to sit around and post pictures and make money off of brand deals or something like that. I'm not being mean to people, you know, whatever. But my point is, no, we are the same generation that they are. We are the same generation, the same birth outside of time. It does not matter what time we're living in. It doesn't matter what place we are living in. When we are born, we are born into the family of God. We are born into that royal priesthood, into that holy nation, into that peculiar people. And so we have been sent. We have been sent. And everywhere we go, We are messengers of God. Hallelujah. 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 Well, if you believe that this morning, just praise the Lord. Just stand up and give God thanks. Listen, listen, you know what happened? The church got so big that they needed to set up middle management, actually, in order to properly handle things. They were having such a revival that every person in Jerusalem who was added to the kingdom sold all of their property, everything they owned, and put it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles distributed to people as they had need. It was a revival of giving. It was a revival of giving. And now we know the reason the Lord did that because we know what happened later. Jerusalem was destroyed. And so all of those Christians that sold all of that property, they, they got in before the market crash. They got in before the housing crash. And they were ready to go out to all the nations of the world. And our history records that not a single Christian died when Jerusalem was destroyed. Because all of them had already dropped everything. So they were ready to run. They had their stuff liquidated. They had cash. They were like, all right, pack up the car. We're going to Antioch. Right? Right? And so that was a revival.
evil. And so those people didn't do that because they were, they were, uh, pr- they were disaster preppers who were preparing for disaster. No, they did that because the Lord moved them to give and they wanted to give into the church. And we know what happened to, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, but I'm not going to get into that. What happened was the church was multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and they brought for they said bring us they said to the church to the people bring us men who are full of the holy ghost and power why because we need deacons and what happens in the bible they bring those seven deacons they name the seven deacons they lay hands on the seven deacons appoint them as deacons and the next thing that's happening is Stephen is going and preaching and doing miracles. Right? So the prerequisite for, for waiting tables in the church of God in the first century was being full of the Holy Ghost and power. That's why we're the way that we are around here. We got people praying before they clean stuff because the prerequisite for serving in the house of God is being full of the Holy Ghost and power. Right? So what does the deacon do? Does he go, oh, it's not my, I'm not one of the preachers. No, the deacon goes out and starts preaching such fire and healing people so much. And they're trying to get him to shut up because he's offending everybody. Right? And instead of shutting up, he sees a vision and he says, I see the one that you killed seated at the right hand of God in heaven and his face shone and he was transfigured. That's just a member of the church. They, they had to kill that man to shut him up. But listen, do you, did he, he was probably ready to go. Right? That's one thing about the martyrs. A lot of times you'll, when, you, when you read through it, you find out they were like 90. And you're like, why are they still martyring these people? <laughs> Just leave them alone. They're ready to go home. Right? They're like, I've run my race. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Bring those lines out here. Ready to go. Ready to go home. <laughs> Light up the fire. No, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> That one fine day is about to be today. No, I, I, I'm just saying that these people had a boldness and they had an authority and they were walking in miracles and in power and the devil could not shut them up. And Paul, when everybody told him he was going to be martyred if he went to, if he went to, to Rome, he went. And instead, he ended up being able to live in his own house with some social distancing (laughs) and write two-thirds of the New Testament so that we could still have it. He was live streaming from his private house. Right? He wrote wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and we still have that today. Is that a victory or is that a victory? Man, they... Listen, you know Stephen was like ready to go. And I'll tell you the reason that I know that because the devil does not have any power over us as Christians. The devil does not have any authority to hurt us. And the proof is Paul. They stoned him multiple times and he was fine. 
They beat him with rods. Normal people would have been paralyzed. He was not paralyzed. Listen, when you execute someone and they refuse to die, when you lock people up and see them walking down the street preaching the gospel the next day, you have to concede that you have no authority over that person. Not even the ocean had authority over Paul. He was shipwrecked multiple times. And instead, he just washed up on the shore of Malta and converted the whole island to Christianity. And they're still Christian today. Right? So that is what it is like to be part of the apostolic generation. That is what it is like. And there are people who are, are that the Lord specifically uses with specific gifts. The Bible talks about prophets and apostles and pastors who are here for the perfecting of the saints, for the perfecting of the saints, which we know isn't done yet. So obviously prophets and I don't know about you. How many of you think the saints are perfected? You've never, you've just never seen a Christian who wasn't the perfect image of the love of God. And the fullness of the power of God. Never once. No? Okay. So if the saints aren't perfected, then the gifts of the prophet and the apostle and the pastor and the teacher are still necessary in the church. And there are governments in the church. But what you see is not only the leadership operating in the Holy Ghost and getting filled with the Holy Ghost. You see every part of the body from the head down. Every cell in the body filled with the power of God. The entire body of Christ walking in the same baptism that the 120 walked in in the upper room. And it didn't end at the upper room. It didn't end at Pentecost. Every time that the saints were multiplied, the book of Acts says, and they received, they were baptized, and they received the Holy Ghost, like we did at Pentecost. And so that generation didn't end. That regeneration didn't end. It continued and continues down to today. And that is why those people that have passed on are still part of us. Because they're still a part of the body of Christ. They're still seated. They're, they're physically seated, right? Well, no, I'm not going to get into that. Whatever. They're just as seated with God in heavenly places as we are seated with God in heavenly places. They're a part of the body of Christ just like we're a part of the body of Christ. There is no separation between them and us because we are all one whole. We are all one perfect man. We are all one body, the body of Christ. There's not two bodies of Christ. There's not two Christs, one on earth and one in heaven. There is one body of Christ. And so there are not two generations or 10 generations or a hundred generations or 200 generations. There is one apostolic generation and you're born into it today. Hallelujah. 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 Are you blessed by that today? Do you know that that's the truth? 
But did that give you a clearer and a firmer stance of authority? How many of you know that people do everything to put distance between themselves and those first century Christians? They do everything they can to come up with reasons why their life is not the same. And so they shouldn't expect the same results. No, you shouldn't expect the same results. You should expect greater results. You should expect bigger things. You should expect greater miracles. Because the word of God has been multiplied across the face of the earth. We're not talking about 3,000 and 7,000 and 10,000 and 15,000 believers anymore. We're talking about two billion believers right now we should expect miracles like the book of Acts never saw because that is our promise that is our promise and you know what happened after Peter and John got teleported out of prison and then they didn't get teleported an angel escorted them doesn't say specifically they got teleported maybe they got teleported it's not important the point is They walked out of prison and nobody saw them and the gates were all closed. So I don't know what you call that. They got that from Jesus, you know, Jesus, after he was, after he was raised from the dead, just showing up in locked rooms. Like, what's up guys? If Jesus can do it, we can do it. (laughs) They get, we got angelic help, right? And just like Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I know not. It's really not important. Whether the angel had to unlock the door in order to let them out of prison or whether he didn't is not what I care about. The point is, once they appeared in the temple and started preaching, it says that the word was preached to the whole city and the people, to the point that the people started bringing their sick and laying them in the streets that the apostles were walking on so that the apostles' shadow could touch those people. Talk about a revival when you got the whole city like we need to get. Just get them close. Just put them out in the street. I heard Peter's walking down the street. I heard Peter's walking down the street. Get me out there. Get me out there so he can see me. So his shadow can touch me. Any part of him can touch me. Right? That is phenomenal. That is incre- that that is that is an incredible revival that was occurring in that city, and that's the type of stuff that we still have access to today, and that's the type of thing that God can and does still do today through us, because as far as He's concerned, you're not separated from them; you're part of the same body that they are a part of today. He knew you before the foundation of the world, just like he knew them. He is, he is the beginning and he is the end. It's no different to him. No matter how much further time goes, you won't get any further away from God. You won't get any further away from the early church either because the early church is the body of Christ. And we are the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us on the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Join us on our other podcast, Miracles Today. Connect with us at globalrevival.com and we'll see you next week.